Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover sexual assault according to the committee opinion by the American College of OBGYN. That's committee opinion number 592. Sexual assault is a crime of violence and aggression and encompasses a continuum of sexual activity that ranges from sexual coercion to contact abuse like unwanted kissing, touching, or fondling to rape. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has a newly revised, more comprehensive definition of rape to track statistics for the annual Uniform Crime Report. The old definition only recognized forceful vaginal penetration of a woman by a man's penis as rape. For the first time ever, the new definition recognizes that rape victims and perpetrators may be female or male and includes oral and anal penetration as well as penetration with an object as rape. Also, physical force is no longer a requirement of rape, so that the definition includes vulnerable victims, like those that are intoxicated or otherwise mentally or physically incapable of demonstrating a lack of consent. Now, the FBI's change does not affect definitions under federal or state criminal laws. The new definition only applies for statistical purposes, so that crimes under existing state laws would now be counted by the federal government. Because definitions vary among states, the term sexual assault is sometimes used interchangeably with rape. Sexual assault and rape are often further characterized to include acquaintance rape, date rape, statutory rape, child sexual abuse, and incest. These terms generally relate to the age of the victim and the relationship to the abuser. The age at which an adolescent may consent to sexual intercourse varies by state and is generally 16 to 18 years of age. Sexual assault that occurs in childhood, defined by most states as younger than 14 years, is considered child abuse. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends that health care providers routinely screen all women for a history of sexual assault, paying particular attention to those who report chronic pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, or sexual dysfunction. Recently, many hospitals have implemented programs to provide acute medical and evidentiary examinations for sexual assault victims by sexual assault nurse examiners or sexual assault forensic examiners. Other health personnel, particularly those trained to respond to rape trauma victims, should be consulted to provide immediate intervention if necessary and to facilitate counseling and follow-up. Healthcare providers are urged to assemble and maintain a list of individuals and other resources for patient referral. Okay, next, let's get into the specific workup of the sexually assaulted patient. Examination of survivors of sexual assault should be conducted by an experienced clinician in a way that minimizes further trauma to the survivor. The decision to obtain genital or other specimens for STI diagnosis should be made on an individual basis, but in general it's recommended. Care systems for survivors should be designed to ensure continuity, support adherence, and monitor adverse reactions to any prescribed therapeutic or prophylactic medical regimen. 
laws in all 50 states strictly limit the evidentiary use of a survivor's previous sexual history, including evidence of previously acquired STIs, as part of an effort to undermine the credibility of the survivor's testimony. Evidentiary privilege against revealing any aspect of the examination or treatment also is enforced in most states. Although it rarely occurs, STI diagnosis might later be accessed and the survivor and clinician might opt to defer testing for this reason. While collection of specimens at initial examination for lab STI diagnosis gives the survivor and clinician the option to defer empiric prophylactic antimicrobial prophylaxis, compliance with follow-up is typically poor. So that's a clinical pearl. Once again, it's an option to defer prophylactic medication until test results for STI return, but compliance is poor. Therefore, in general, it's recommended to offer STI prophylaxis as time of evaluation. Among sexually active adults, the identification of an STI might represent an infection acquired before the assault and therefore might be more important for the medical management of the patient than just for legal purposes. Trichomonas, BV, gonorrhea, and chlamydial infections are the most frequently diagnosed infections among women who have been sexually assaulted. Such conditions are prevalent in the population, and detection of these infections after an assault does not necessarily imply acquisition during the assault. However, a post-assault examination presents an important opportunity to identify or prevent STIs. Chlamydia and gonococcal infections in women are of particular concern because of the possibility of ascending infection and their impact on fertility. In addition, hepatitis B viral infection can be prevented through post-exposure vaccination. Because female survivors are also at risk of acquiring HPV infection and the efficacy of the HPV vaccine is high, HPV vaccination, that's human papillomavirus vaccination, is also recommended for females through age 26. Reproductive age female survivors should be evaluated, of course, for pregnancy. For the initial evaluation, nucleic acid amplification tests for chlamydia and Neisseria at the site of penetration or attempted penetration is recommended. These tests are preferred over urine or vaginal specimens, although both of those options can also be done. A serum sample for evaluation of HIV, hepatitis B, and syphilis infections is also recommended. For treatment, remember that compliance with follow-up is poor among survivors of sexual assault, so point-of-care offering, in other words, offering prophylactic medication at time of initial evaluation, is recommended. An empiric antimicrobial regimen for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomonas is recommended by the CDC. Additionally, emergency contraception can be considered when the assault could result in pregnancy in the survivor. Post-exposure hepatitis B vaccine without HBIG if the hepatitis status of the assailant is unknown and the survivor has not previously been vaccinated is also recommended. Now, if the assailant is known to be hepatitis B surface antigen positive, Unvaccinated survivors should receive both hepatitis B vaccine and HBIG. The vaccine and HBIG, if indicated, should be administered to sexual assault survivors at the time of the initial evaluation, and follow-up dosages of vaccine should be administered 
at one to two and four to six months after the first dose. Survivors who are previously vaccinated but did not receive post-vaccination testing should receive a single vaccine booster dose. Additionally, HPV vaccination, that's human papillomavirus vaccination, is recommended for female survivors aged 9 to 26 years and for male survivors aged 9 to 21 years. Recommendations for HIV post-exposure prophylaxis are individualized according to risk, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. All right, well, let's talk about these recommended medical regimens for prophylaxis against the most common infections of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomonas. The recommended regimens includes ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM, in a single dose, plus Zithromax, 1 gram orally, in a single dose, plus metronidazole, 2 grams orally, in a single dose, or tinidazole, or Tindamax, 2 grams orally, in a single dose. If alcohol has been recently ingested or emergency contraception is provided, metronidazole or tinidazole can be taken by the sexual assault survivor at home rather than as directly observed therapy to minimize potential side effects and drug interactions. Clinicians should counsel persons regarding the possible benefits and toxicities associated with these treatment regimens, like GI side effects, which can occur with this combination. The efficacy of these regimens in preventing infections after sexual assault has not yet been fully evaluated, but is still recommended. For those requiring alternative treatments, then it's important to refer to specific sections according to the CDC website for those patients. Okay, for follow-up, after the initial post-assault examination, follow-up examinations provide an opportunity to detect new infections acquired during or after the assault to complete hepatitis B and HPV vaccinations, if indicated, and complete counseling and treatment for other STIs. It also allows an opportunity to monitor for side effects and adherence to post-exposure prophylactic medication if prescribed. Now, if initial testing was done, follow-up examination should be conducted within one week to ensure that results of a positive test can be discussed with the survivor. Treatment is provided if not given at the initial visit, and any follow-up of infections can be arranged. Now, if initial tests were negative and treatment was not provided, examination for STIs can be repeated at one to two weeks of the assault. Repeat testing detects infectious organisms that might not have reached sufficient concentrations to provide a positive test result initially. Now, for survivors who are tested during the initial visit, regardless of whether testing was performed, post-treatment testing should be conducted only if the survivor reports having symptoms. A follow-up examination at one to two months should also be considered to reevaluate the development of anogenital warts, especially among sexual assault survivors who received a diagnosis of other STIs. If initial test results were negative and infection in the assailant cannot be ruled out, then serological tests for syphilis should be repeated at four to six weeks and three months. HIV testing can be repeated at six weeks and three and six months using methods to identify acute HIV infection. Okay, as we wrap up the podcast, let's cover a specific infection, which of course is of paramount importance. Let's talk about HIV virus infection and sexual assault next. Okay, a particular concern after sexual assault is human immunodeficiency virus or HIV transmission, where the status of the assailant is often unknown or unavailable. 
multiple characteristics increase the risk of HIV transmission, including genital or rectal trauma leading to bleeding, multiple traumatic sites involving lacerations or deep abrasions, and the presence of pre-existing genital infection or ulcers in the victim. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recommends that an individual seeking care within 72 hours after non-occupational exposure to blood, genital secretions, or other potentially infective body fluids from an HIV-positive individual receive a 28-day course of highly active antiretroviral therapy initiated as soon as possible after exposure. Once again, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recommends that an individual seeking care within 72 hours after non-occupational exposure to blood or other body fluid from an HIV-positive individual receive a 28-day course of highly active antiretroviral therapy. If the assailant's HIV status is unknown, clinicians should evaluate the risk and benefits of non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis, called PEP, on a case-by-case basis. For individuals initiating care less than 72 hours after exposure, now remember, some guidelines actually restrict initiation of non-occupational PEP to within 36 hours following exposure. Clinicians may consider prescribing non-occupational PEP for exposures conferring a serious risk of transmission if, in the clinician's judgment, the unknown potential benefit of treatment outweighs the potential risk of adverse events from antiretroviral medication. The decision to prescribe non-occupational PEP should be made after a thorough risk assessment taking into account the preference of the woman, the prevalence of HIV in the area or institutional setting where the assault occurred, the estimated risk of infection in the perpetrator, and the risk of the exposure. If a patient starts non-occupational HIV PEP, a two to five day initial supply with a follow-up visit within several days helps increase continuation rates and allows for a comprehensive discussion after recovery from the attack. The patient's HIV status should be tested within 72 hours of the initial assault and then repeated at six weeks, three months, and six months. Now, regardless of whether non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis is initiated, the clinician should provide HIV risk reduction and primary prevention counseling. Okay, now because the issue of HIV post-exposure prophylaxis can be a little complicated, let's end this session with a quick review of the algorithm based on the CDC for post-exposure prophylaxis of HIV. Now remember that the algorithm is divided into two camps, those seeking contact with a healthcare provider within 72 hours after exposure and those seeking evaluation after 72 hours from exposure. Now, in those patients seeking evaluation within 72 hours where the assailant is known to be HIV positive, then of course, post-exposure prophylaxis is recommended. In those cases where the assailant HIV status is unknown, then post-exposure prophylaxis should be done by a case-by-case determination. In those presenting for care greater than 72 hours since exposure or in those with a negligible exposure risk, post-exposure prophylaxis is not recommended. 
The CDC considers a negligible risk for HIV acquisition from sexual assault in the following case, when there's exposure of the vagina, rectum, eye, mouth, or other mucous membranes, intact or non-intact skin, or even percutaneous contact with urine, nasal secretions, saliva, sweat, or tears if not visibly contaminated with blood, regardless of the known or suspected HIV status of the source. However, the CDC considers a substantial risk for HIV acquisition when there is exposure of those areas with blood, semen, vaginal secretions, rectal secretions, breast milk, or any body fluid that is visibly contaminated with blood when the source is known to be HIV positive. Unfortunately, key findings from the U.S. National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey reveal that an estimated 1.3 million rape-related physical assaults occur against women annually. Approximately 18% of women surveyed reported that they had been victims of a completed or attempted rape during their lifetime. Nearly 80% reported that they were first raped before age 25, and 42% before age 18. Among female victims, 51% reported that at least one perpetrator was a current or former intimate partner. 41% reported an acquaintance, 13% reported a family member, and only 14% reported a stranger. Because of these numbers, screening for physical and sexual assault is vital in the OBGYN population. Well, that wraps up our review covering the ACOG committee opinion from 2014, which was reaffirmed in 2016, as well as the current CDC algorithm for post-exposure prophylaxis from sexual assault. We'll see you next time.